Welcome to an exclusive episode of Mind Love. Today's episode is all about net worth and self-worth. We can be valuable human beings and still be in the midst of a challenging financial time. And that doesn't mean that we're any less than because we may be going through a financial struggle. We still have things that we can offer to people we love in our lives and the world. And we still are valuable human beings despite our financial circumstances. And if we can start to separate that out and really reinforce the fact that we're whole and complete just the way that we are, and that that can really drive our ability to get you know, out of a financial struggle, perhaps, and to be able to do great things with our money. If we can start to separate that out, I think that's where the power is. Today, we're going to be talking about some practical tips for dealing with our finances. I know a lot of us are a little worried about money right now. And this episode was recorded before this global crisis that we're facing. So we're not really going to touch on that. However, the tips we are going to share are timeless. Here's a hard fact. Often our financial situation is tied to our worth, sometimes directly and other times indirectly. When I was in my 20s, there was a period of time where I was making way more money than any of my friends, but somehow I was still mostly living paycheck to paycheck. I was living well paycheck to paycheck, but as hard as I tried or as much as I wanted to, I couldn't get myself to save much over a long period of time. I would always have a savings account, and for a while I got great at shoveling money into it, but then something would come up, a huge emergency expense or a huge expensive desire, and in my mind, I had the money, so there it would go. I'm not sure I could look back and say, well, I didn't think I deserved the money, but I could look back and say, I never had the self-belief that I was the type of person who had a lot of savings. I honestly didn't feel responsible. I'm not sure why that is, but I do know I saw myself as spontaneous and carefree and free-spirited. And having savings felt like something that a stable person would do. And even now, I have to put money in separate accounts because if the number in the account that I spend from is too high and then I come across, say, an intriguing Kickstarter campaign... I will back that $350 jacket made with astronaut suit gel and then later sell it on Poshmark for 15% of the price paid. Money is a funny thing. On one hand, it's the most practical tool that we have. And on the other, it's sort of an illusion. Most of us make and spend money without ever seeing it. It's all done through virtual transactions. And we place so much importance on this. We let it affect our happiness, our sense of security, our social class, our relationships. Money's a big deal. So in this episode, we're going to try to unravel some of the stories that we've created about money and then offer some really practical tips on how to start getting a handle on our finances. Our guest today is Andi Frazier. She is the CEO and editor-in-chief of My Worth LLC, a media company inspiring women to take control of their money by breaking down the emotional, behavioral and societal barriers that prevent them from building strong financial foundations. And three key things we will learn are how our need for instant gratification actually destroys our self-worth, how our friends and family affect our financial decisions, and practical advice for spending, saving, and investing. And now let's welcome Andy Frazier to the show. Thank you so much, Melissa, for having me. So first things first, 
Why is it so hard to talk about money? You know, I think it's interesting how it's such a taboo subject. I uh, often tease that we talk about sex and politics more than we talk about money. And I really think that has a lot to do with some, maybe some shame issues around money or judgment issues that many people have where they feel like they can't be transparent about what's going on in their lives and in their financial world. And maybe they don't want to be judged by their friends or have a feeling of shame or be embarrassed or maybe they've been perpetuating a lifestyle and they don't really want to tell the truth about what's really going on. So I think there's a lot of that that kind of feeds into the reason why people don't talk about money. Yeah, because I've been on both sides. I've had I've had money and I've not had money, not to extreme amounts on either side, but to where maybe I was up or below my friends. And even when I have more, it's it's almost like I'm afraid that even talking about it is going to rub it in the face of those who have less or whatever. It's like if it's not exactly on an even playing ground, we are weighing whether we think the other person deserves it or not. It's just really odd. Yeah, you're totally right on. I think if we mention how much we make and we find out a friend of ours is making a lot more than we are, then we sometimes feel that maybe we're not good enough or that we don't have the kind of skills and talents that they do. And so we start judging ourselves. Whereas if we maybe make more than our friends, we feel like we have to apologize for making more or try to make them feel better. And so there's all of this emotional chutney that kind of goes along with these financial conversations. Well, I find it interesting that most of my life I've tried to just ignore my financial situation (laughs) and you went all in and you became a financial advisor. So what led you down that path? Well, I started out as an advisor working with my dad in his financial planning practice right out of college. And I was an advisor for several years and started to see a trend where we were talking a lot about tactics with people, what to do and where to put their money. But there wasn't a lot of talk about all of these emotional and behavioral issues and even societal issues that are at the foundation of many people's financial world and how they can really make decisions but not stick with them for very long because they haven't addressed these underlying issues. And so I actually have evolved throughout my career. I have worked in a lot of the different parts of the financial industry, developing advisors, working and running a fintech company, um, now launching a media company. And so I've been able to kind of take all of that knowledge and training and really use it to be able to now give back and talk about many of these issues that nobody seems to really want to talk about that all that often. So it's interesting having someone who was learning different financial tactics and even becoming aware of the money mindset at such a young age, because I'm pretty sure at that age, I was at a frat party. (laughs) So, So how was it different for you learning some of these things? Did you notice a difference between your own financial behaviors and that of your friends who were not working as a financial advisor? Well, yeah, first of all, I really did not like have aspirations to be in the financial business when I was going through college. I wanted to be in the fashion business. So this is like a polar, you know, (laughs) swing to another direction. But my dad really encouraged me to take a look at it. He talked about the advantages that women have as far as being in the business because they have the ability to build relationships and really relate and connect with people on this deeper level. And he saw 
from working with his own clients. He was a minister prior to launching his financial planning practice. And he said, you know, I worked with so many people when I was a minister dealing with their financial struggles and seeing how they that was affecting their marriages and their family relationships. And so he really felt like that there was so much more that we could offer, you know, to talk about these core issues. And so when I started in the business, at first I was like, let's just check this out for a year or two. But the more I learned about it, the more intrigued I got. And you know, certainly it isn't a common conversation when you're in your early 20s to go out with your friends and say, let me tell you about what I learned at work today, because they're, <laughs> as you said, they're totally uninterested. But what I started to do is ask them a little bit about their stories that they had made up about money. What were some of their personal experiences growing up and how did they decide that money meant something more than just a medium of exchange? And so those conversations started to lead into being very curious and diving into more of the behavioral financial realm of the industry and really studying that. And it's just fascinating to me how money seems to be a conversation that many advisors think that they can have separate from the reality of life. And so when I really launched my worth, one of the things I wanted to make sure we do is not treat money as a separate conversation. It's interwoven throughout our daily lives. And it was important to recognize that and deal with that straight on. And I think that just came about through hearing other people's stories, asking a lot of questions. I've always been fascinated with human behavior, watching people, and just being really observant as far as how are people acting and behaving around money and what was driving some of their decisions and actions. And so it was really kind of fun to do that, especially when you're just getting out of college and you're seeing how people are reacting to making money for the first time in their lives, like real money. So it's very interesting. So what are some of the common drivers of our beliefs around money? Is it our environment, experiences? Is it our parents? Is it a combination of all of them? It is a combination of all of them. I think it certainly is in the beginning, our parents or teachers or other adults that we maybe hear tell us phrases or talk about money. You know, we've all heard the common phrases, money doesn't grow on trees, money's the root of all evil, or you know, it's only money, you can make more. And all of these phrases kind of start to build on our mindset and start to really influence us. And we're not aware of it when we hear them as a child. And I also think it's us observing our parents and other adults' behavior around money. When we hear our parents maybe complaining about having to work long hours or not having enough money to maybe go on trips or buy gifts, or maybe they have a lot of money and they're spending it without really recognition, with indifference, that's also something that we can observe. And it's through observing that other behavior that we as children really start to understand how money fits into a larger scope of life. And like I said, we don't really take awareness of it, but it's back there in our subconscious kind of forming these stories that we're making up about money. And we go through our childhood with this only to wake up one day as an adult. And now we have to make real financial decisions. And so we think, okay, let me figure out what stocks to buy or what investments to make or what you know mutual funds to invest in. And we maybe do that for a while until things start to come up in our lives that we don't really know how to deal with. And now we're not staying consistent with any actions for very long. And that goes back to us never really identifying the story we made up and how it's influenced our perspective on and impacts on money. So I think it's um, really interesting to go back and, and look at that. Besides childhood, I think it's we have where you live certainly has an impact. I grew up in the South where 
you know, it wasn't uncommon to hear that desiring money was like of the devil or sinful. <laughs> and so that has an impact. If you lived in other parts of the country, you may have heard different things about money. So I think religion, um, geographic location has a lot to do with it. Our parents and adults and even then our friends as we enter in our teenage years, certainly the things that we see and hear on media and on the internet um, all have an influence. Um, how we think about work and our work ethic can also play into it. And so I think all of that really just feeds into these stories that we've made up about money. I was reading something that it was saying how research shows that we're way more affected by our environment than we think sometimes. So what if you're in a situation where you might still live at home or you are surrounded by people that have a lacking mindset? Does that mean we're basically royally screwed? <laughs> well, well, you know what's interesting, Melissa, is I've noticed when I, I've done a lot of interviewing with different people, I love talking to people because I think that's where you really get to know how people are thinking and feeling around this issue. And what I find to be interesting is you may find two siblings in the same family that grew up in the same financial environment but have very different um, perspectives, very different choices, very different lanes that they play in as adults related to money. So if they grew up in an environment where maybe money was really tight and they didn't have money, one might be like when they make money, they're spending it just to because they couldn't, you know, while they were growing up, where the other sibling might be very focused on saving money and be very frugal with their money because they know what it's like not to have it. And so even in the same environment, you might have people that decide to take different paths regarding their finances. As it relates to kind of where we are today and our friends, I think we're most influenced as teenagers and adults by the people that we associate with. And so our friends or our love interest, um, the way that they behave around money can certainly influence us. And it can be really hard for us to take a stand on what we want to do with our money if we're constantly you know, battling up against people that have different mindsets or different beliefs or different attitudes about money. I was speaking at an event in New York City last night, and this was the common conversation about, you know, my friends make more money than I do. They want to go on trips or they want to do things that I can't afford to do, but I want to be with them and I want to feel like I'm part of the group. And so how do I avoid getting myself further into debt by, you know, trying to do something and keep up with them when I know I can't do that. How do I handle that situation? So I think it's a deeper issue that we have to be paying attention to. I feel like I totally relate to that where I've not really totally understood my money mindset because I haven't historically been the best with money. At certain times, it'll go in waves. Like I didn't get myself into a lot of debt. I was even kind of afraid of student loans. But then there was a few years where I was just like, screw it, I'm going into debt. And I just went hard and wasn't spending very well. But I've looked back where my parents were really good with money. I mean, I didn't learn a lot of investing or whatever, but I they were frugal. We were well off. And so I've wondered where that came from. And what I started to drill it down to, it might be because a lot of what was modeled for me and everybody in my family was that the man was the breadwinner. And so there's certain streams of that throughout my life where I like expect my husband to, <laughs> to provide more than I want to provide or whatever it is. So I'm curious because I don't always know if I'm just making these things up or really looking for patterns. How do we start to get clarity on the limiting beliefs that are really holding us back with our financial situation? 
Well, first, I think you really touched on something that we have to start talking about more and more. And that is that when we grow up in these environments where the male typically was the breadwinner of the family, you know, for us as young women, um, I'm in my late 40s, but I can remember growing up, you know, it was kind of assumed you'd get married and the husband would make all the financial decisions or at least the planning decisions. You might pay the bills or do that. And so there wasn't a lot taught to us as young girls about money. And so what I'm seeing now, especially among the demographic of about 35 to 55 is with divorce and with people having different changes in their life. You know, I have a lot of friends who are widowed. The average age of a widow is about 59, believe it or not. And now they're kind of like, oh goodness, now I have to make financial decisions where maybe my partner is the one that always did it. And they're finding them, you know, in a bit of a struggle and a challenge to do so. And so I think that it's really important for us to recognize this and start to educate young girls about the importance of taking ownership of their, you know, finances and at least understand what's going on so that they don't end up in the middle of their lives having to deal with a crisis and having to learn about money all at you know the same time. And so I think that's something that's really, really powerful. As far as how do we start to kind of look at our own money mindsets, I think being aware of first, what are we doing with money? Are we paying attention to it? Are we pretending like the issue's not there? Are we asking good questions? I think it really starts with being aware of what's going on and not kind of going, you know, we have so many things going on in our lives. Sometimes as women, this is at the bottom of the list, but we have to create an awareness about what we're doing, thinking and feeling when it comes to money. I think a lot of people are like you, Melissa, they're they're kind of like in a state of, I wouldn't say it's denial. It's just, I'll get to it someday. Now's not the day. And so that sometimes can put you in a bad situation where you're now in the middle of having a life-changing event and you're trying to figure everything out and learn about money at the same time. Yeah, I liked what you said, how we have to create an awareness of what we're doing, thinking, and feeling about money, because I think that's an awareness that we have to create about everything. <laughs> like That's part, been such a part of my self-development journey is realizing that I wasn't in touch with myself. So how was I supposed to know my passions or my triggers or my boundaries or any of these things that have been problems throughout my teens or 20s or whatever, because we're not really taught to look inward. And so especially with our financial situation, our finances are really what build the life around us in a material way. And so I think is one of the most tangible ways to get inside of your mindset is really how your life is playing out around you, what you have what you spend. But I also find it so interesting that somebody can have lacking mindset and not be very financially sound in their mindset, but still manage to make a lot of money, but then just overspend it. And it's interesting how these different money blocks play out in our lives. What do you think is the most common ways that we uh, kind of screw with our financial situation? I think it's that we have this instant gratification kind of feeling that we get. I talk about the fact that a lot of times when I look at people's behavior around money and they're doing things that really contradict what they say they really want. So I might sit down with somebody and they, t- they share with me their goals. And yet when I see their behavior, I'm like, there's no alignment here between what you're doing and what you're saying you want to achieve. And what I find when you kind of dig into that is that their behavior is a result of them wanting an initial payoff. They get some sort of instant gratification or a payoff. They get to feel good or look good or brag to their friends, or they get to 
have the item that they want in the moment and it feels good. That's why we do it. But there's also a bigger cost later on because there's a cost when the credit card bill comes in. There's a cost to not achieving financial security. And there's and that cost can be much more precious because it actually starts to erode your confidence. And if we're not careful, it can actually result in shame. And because that cost tends to be something that may not be apparent in the moment, it may not be something that's even on our radar. It's that that instant gratification, that payoff feels really good. So we're not necessarily getting in touch with the long-term cost and what this is really going to mean to our lives later on. And when I hear stats like 40% of Americans have less than $400 to cover an emergency expense, that's shocking to me. You know, everybody that I see in my area of life, it seems like everybody is doing really, really well, yet I hear a stat like that and I wonder if people are just carrying around loads of debt, are they overspending, and what's going to happen when they get to be later on in life and they're needing to live and they need to have an income coming in. I think, you know, we're living longer these days and if we continue to retire at 65 or 70 years old, We may have 25 to 30 years of retirement where we're not working that we're going to need to have an income for. And so if people aren't saving, it's going to be a burden to society in order to be able to take care of them. It's it's really going to be interesting to see how this overspending plays out long term. Yeah, it's so interesting. I feel like as a whole, the at least the bubble that I live in, people are willing to be a little bit more vulnerable about certain topics. But I found that there's two that have really high stats that no one's still talking about, and that's debt and STDs. <laughs> but we're talking about the debt one today. So I'm curious, though, when we start to become aware of these limiting beliefs are holding us back and we start to identify maybe what's going wrong in our own lives, just because we're aware of it doesn't necessarily mean that we are changing the behavior. So what are the first steps to begin to change our behaviors so that we find more alignment in what we're trying to accomplish and what we're actually doing? So I think behavior starts with making sure you have really clearly identified what's valuable and important to you about money. Um, And I mean these core values, like the things that keep you grounded. Um, For me, as an example, one of my core values is independence. I want to know that I can take care of myself and that I won't have to rely on others to take care of me. And so that was that's really important to me, not just in my financial world, but in general. And so I worked really hard to kind of identify those values so that when I then set goals, that I could align my goals with those values. So one of my goals when I was just getting started was to have six months worth of living expenses saved up so that if something happened, I knew I could get through at least six months without having to depend on anyone else to take care of me. And that gave me a really strong sense of independence. And once I got to that goal, I was able to then, you know, reach for other goals, but it it gave me a win, like a win that I could get to without waiting years to get to it. And so, and it gave me a sense of feeling really like I was accomplishing something that was really important to me. And so when you have values that you've set for yourself and then you build your goals based on those values, then you can start to make sure that your behavior is aligned with both your values and your goals. And so then when you're triggered, like when you're triggered to go out and buy something for yourself or you're triggered to go on a vacation that you know you can't afford, then sometimes at least you have the ability to say, how does this 
get me to my goal? How does this fulfill on my value that I said that I wanted and that was important to me? And if you can ask those questions, sometimes just that pause can allow you to make a different choice with regards to your behavior. I also think that many times with financial planning, it's like long-term strategies. And I think we need to stop thinking we can make one plan for 30 years and instead make a, you know, 31-year plans because life changes along the way and we need to have flexibility and agility to make changes with our financial world just as much as we do with our own life and things will adjust. And so sometimes by breaking it down into 31-year plans versus one 30-year plan, it gives you a sense of being able to have a short-term goal that you can accomplish and feel really proud of. And that can start to also keep you motivated to slowly alter your behavior. It's little by little that we can do this. So I know that I was just reading this article actually about uh, how millennials really took to heart, spend money on experiences, not things, and how much they went in debt for it. And so I know though that a lot of us are like, well, you know what? Traveling and seeing the world and having these experiences are part of my values. How do you know if, if your spending is in line with your values in a healthy way or if you're taking it to an extreme where you might be screwing yourself over later? Or do you need to basically balance it out, like putting your eggs in different baskets? Or how does that work? I, I think you're right on about balancing it out. You know, I think there is the mistake that a lot of people make is think they have to sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice for retirement. And unfortunately, I've seen a lot of people get into retirement as a couple, maybe, and one person may come down with a debilitating illness. I've had um, friends that have retired and a year later, one of their spouses has passed or they don't have the ability to do all the things they had saved up for and they are now having to spend it on health care or something else. And so, you know, I think waiting your entire life to get to the point where then you can enjoy money, there's no guarantee about that. So I do think it needs to be a balance of where you're living and enjoying life today and also saving for the future. And so I think that's where it becomes really important. If you're if you're a single independent individual and you're not in a relationship, then looking to say, what's important to me? What's important to me now? What's going to be important to me in the next two to five years? And what is going to be important for me long term? And even start to think about allocating some of your money to be able to put that forward in in those different categories so that you can have experiences today while you're young and you're healthy or while you, you know live in the moment. And also be able to have money set aside for the future so that you can feel good about that when you get to that point in your life. And so I think it is a balance of short, medium, and long-term goal setting that you can do for yourself. I loved the idea of creating these little one-year plans because I think that's a tactic that would really work for me. I am not very good at long-term. I love setting like my long-term vision, but there's no way that somebody could tell me like, okay, well, you need $500,000 by the time you're 50. And I'd be like, okay, that's motivating. (laughs) Like I'd put it off until I was like 48. So when we're creating a little one-year plan, how do you break it down? Do you just take the long-term and divide it? Or is there a a way that keeps that, um, I don't know, more in line with a goal that'll stay motivating for us? So I think when you look at your one-year plan, you know, the first question you should ask yourself is what's the highest and best use of my money right now? 
And it may be to pay down debt. It may be to go on a family vacation. You know, so many people work so hard and never take vacations. I'm actually one of those people, by the way. Um, and I've, my kids are now getting to the point I've got one in college and one a sophomore in high school. And I'm like, wait a minute, I, I wish I would have taken more vacations. And so I think it's sometimes a family vacation is really important to do in a year. And so if that's really, and that goes, may go back to their values. And so looking and saying, what's the highest and best use of my money this year? Is it to pay off something immediate so I have some freedom and flexibility? Is it to also put some aside for the future? I think you can divide and conquer, you know, easily by looking at what's the highest and best use for this next year. And I also think you can build assets that eventually can start to pay for other everyday things. So as your assets grow, then you might have your you know, assets or the interest or the dividends off those assets pay for things like insurance premiums or pay for maybe debt reduction later on. So you can start to build money to where money's working for you and paying for some of those day-to-day things alongside your person at work dollars, if you will, the money that you're earning from your job or your business or, or whatever else that you may be doing. And so I think it's a way to be able to kind of divide that up and recognize that it needs to be something where you are looking at in a year, what is my most immediate need? And also recognizing that I need to be thinking about the future because we all know that over time, if we're slowly saving and putting money away over time, it can do so many tremendous things for us. So we don't need to wait and, and, and you know, because time is the one thing we can't get back. So I think it's important to kind of split the two and it may be it's a third, a third, a third, a third of, you know, enjoyment of life, a third towards saving um, for the future, and maybe a third towards satisfying something that needs to be satisfied today, whether it be to pay off debt or to make a down payment on a home or to pay for a, a child's education, something that's more medium term goal there. So I've noticed that our beliefs about ourselves tend to drive a lot of our behaviors. And so To me, it seems that that must play into money. And it's weird because self-worth is something that seems to be not only affected by our financial situation, but also might create our financial situation. So it's like a chicken and the egg type thing. How do you see self-worth really go in line with what, how our money plays out in our lives? Well, I think this goes back to a little bit around our first personal experience with money when we first recognized that money meant something more than just a way to pay for something. Um, A lot of times that event, it may be a good event, but many times it is a negative event. It's when there's something happened and you make up a story about money. And that event sometimes can result in you feeling shame. It can result in you feeling, you know, maybe embarrassed or feel like something is unfair. And when it's tied to money, then now you've collapsed your financial worth and your self-worth together. And once they're collapsed, it is really challenging to try to, you know, pull them apart and be able to separate them out because we have five or six financial decisions we make every day on a daily basis, just by what coffee we drink, whether it's at home or at Starbucks. And so, I think it's really hard to pull them apart once they've collapsed. And you're right. I think sometimes it's you've got self-worth and that dictates your financial worth. And on other times, your financial worth for many people feel like that it is related to their self-worth. And I think what we have to remember is that financial worth is a circumstance or an environment that's created. It's not who we are. And we can be valuable human beings and still be in the midst a challenging financial time 
And that doesn't mean that we're any less than because we may be going through a financial struggle. We still have things that we can offer to our, the love people we love in our lives and the world. And we, we still are valuable human beings despite our financial circumstances. And if we can start to separate that out and really reinforce the fact that we're whole and complete just the way that we are, and that can really drive our ability to get you know, out of a financial struggle, perhaps, and to be able to do great things with our money. If we can start to separate that out, I think that's where the power is. Okay, so say we've begun to lay out the stories we've been telling ourselves about money and really clarifying those limiting beliefs. We've also identified our values so that we know what is the highest and best use of our money. What about when we start creating that budget? Do we lay out a spreadsheet and say like this amount goes to food? Like how rigid do you think a really successful budget is? I think it's really good to just first get a handle on what's coming in and going out. I see so many people that have no handle on that. They, you know, they have money coming in and they pay their bills and then anything that's left over, they may or may not save. So I always recommend that you pay yourself first, that you're paying yourself before you're paying your bills. And that may mean you may have to make some adjustments in order to be able to do that. So if you're finding you have nothing left over at the end of the month to save, or to pay down debt, as an example, over the minimums, then then maybe you need to look at what is your expenses that you're incurring to see if you can adjust that. Because so many people get trapped in, I'll save what's left over versus paying yourself first. So if you can pay yourself first and then live on the rest, then I think that is a really powerful step. You know, I've seen so much um, in different books and in different um, articles and from different financial professionals through the years talk about, you know, 30% should go to this and 20% should go to that. I think it varies, though, from person to person and where they're living and what they're doing and what their family or their personal situation really looks like. I think it's really hard to say, this is the formula that's going to work for everybody 100% of the time. I think it is a very individual process. And if you pay yourself first and you get to have the saving then you can start to look at your values and goals and what's important to you. What are you spending money on today? And then look for opportunities to be able to make adjustments as needed. I also think there's a lot of people that um, don't recognize that they're losing money that maybe they didn't even know they were losing. So there's creative financial strategies that are out there if you work with a great advisor to where you're not necessarily having to cut back on your pumpkin spice lattes or your avocado toast but you can actually find money that you didn't even know was going out the door. I read a book called Profit First that talks about that pay yourself first method. And what I feel like I was trying to explain it to a friend of mine and she had some questions that I didn't exactly know how to answer. And it was really that, okay, so when we think about getting paid, we assume like that's the money that we're paying ourselves, and that goes to our bills and that goes to investments and savings and whatever. And so it was hard to really grasp the concept of, okay, here's what you pay yourself and here's, and the rest is what you live on. So the money that you pay yourself, is that also the, is that just the money that you get to go have fun with? Or is that the money that we also have to consider what we save and what we invest and those segmentations? So I would, let's say you're getting, you know, a you're getting paid each week, you know, taking, I mean, it would be awesome if we could get to say 15% of our gross annual income. I mean, that's an ideal. And I know that it seems like a stretch for so many people, but 
you know, when you think about all the things that impact our money, that's really where we should be saving. So if we took 15% off the top of our gross pay and we set that aside for savings, saving meaning, you know, for that long-term savings or building up, an, you know, our, I call it a liberty fund because it's not just an emergency fund. Sometimes it can be a liberty fund. We could talk about that in a minute if you want, but pay, you know, put that aside where it's out of your purview. It's in another account. It is away from, you know, how you pay your bills and then learn to live on the rest and live on the rest might include you doing some fun things for yourself. It might include a vacation or it might include buying something special for yourself, your clothing allowance or your entertainment allowance. And it might also certainly should include all the things you have to pay for, like your rent or your mortgage or your gas, or your food or your utilities, et cetera. So when I think about paying yourself first, it is that savings element that I'm referring to. And putting it out of your checking account is like, have it go there before you even have it hit your checking account would even be more ideal because then you don't see it and you don't have the temptation to want to spend it. So what is this Liberty Fund you spoke of? So I, I think one of the things I see so many people do is when they get started in their career, they we've all heard, you know, you got to start saving for retirement as early as possible. And the very first thing you should do is you know, open an IRA or invest in your 401k. And, and I think those, you know, I can see merit to that. But what I also see is so many people who have done that. And yet, so they have all their money tied up in these retirement accounts, which have penalties and tax implications if they have to get that money early. And yet when they need to, you know, when they have a, an illness or when they have an emergency or when they want to get out of a bad relationship or they want to launch a new business or find a new job, they have no access to money. And if you have no access to money because it's either tied up in some of these qualified retirement accounts, then what you either do is you either go into debt, which is what most people do, or you stop saving for the long term, or even worse, you go into the retirement account and take money out and take, you know, hit, hit with all those penalties and taxes because you don't have access to capital. And so I recommend before you start thinking about saving for retirement, you need to build up a Liberty Fund. And I do believe six months worth of living expenses is a good target or 50% of your gross annual income would even be better so that you have access to money when you need it for whatever comes your way in life, as it sure, certainly will be. Without that in-between account, you know, that Liberty Fund, then you will have a hard time staying consistent with anything else long term. So what about debt? When is debt good? When is it bad? I know there's people like Dave Ramsey and whoever that say like, no debt ever, buy your house outright, all these things that seem really infeasible to a lot of people, especially if we're living paycheck to paycheck. Oh, we could talk about debt for a while. So I will tell you that I think that um, there's good debt and bad debt. You know, there is debt where you made it, might incur it to launch a business, something that can produce results and income for you later on. I think that debt is something or deductible debt. And that debt should be looked at as good debt, if you want to call it good debt. I think bad debt like credit card debt or automobile loans those kinds of things, certainly where they're not deductible and there's high interest rates, those are the things that we want to strive to get paid off as quickly as possible. Um, I also think that when you think about a mortgage, I know so many people have followed Dave Ramsey's advice and tried to pay off their homes. But in 2008, I live in on Long Island in New York, and I saw so many homeowners that were like, all my money's tied up in my house, and now I can't get it out. 
and I'm forced to sell my house in a down market. Nobody's buying and they were trying to retire. And so I think that there's you know, you certainly should look at whether or not having your home paid off is really a good thing. You know, maybe carrying the debt, but having the ability to pay it off if you want to by having money in another account might be a better strategy. It certainly gives you more control over your money and more flexibility over your money long term. I also think when it comes down to paying down debt, you know, you hear so many people that'll say, pay the debt with the highest interest rate first. And I, economically, totally that makes sense. But sometimes that debt can be like the biggest amount of debt that we have. You know, if it's maybe we have like five credit cards and we the one with the highest interest rate might have the most balance on there because it's been accruing interest, especially if we've been only paying the minimums. And so you might feel like, gosh, it's going to take me three years to pay off that card. And that can be very defeating if you're just trying to make some progress. And so one of the most important things about looking at somebody's behavior and understanding their values and goals and what motivates them is to allow somebody to have some quick wins. So sometimes when I sit down with somebody, I might recommend that they pay off the card with the lowest balance first. Um, Even if it's got a low interest rate, knowing economically that may not be the ideal situation. But if I know that they can have a quick win and they can find a sense of accomplishment, which will keep them moving forward to pay off the, the next card and the next card and the next card, that's more valuable than me putting, you know, an economic strategy out in front of somebody that seems like they're defeated before they ever get started. So that's where this behavior and really looking at that really is important when you're developing strategies for people. What if you have like three credit cards and one of them has the lowest balance, but also the best interest rate. And then they offer you, hey, do a balance transfer to this. And then you can kind of clear up your other two credit cards so that you're only paying off one. Is that a good strategy because this balance transfer comes with a low interest rate or are they tricking you somehow? I think it's a good strategy, but you also have to recognize that there's, you know, always the fine print, right? So typically what happens with those cards is there's a limited amount of time that the interest rate is low. So you might have a year or two where that interest rate is low and then all of a sudden it'll go up even higher. So if you this should all be done in the context of a real plan. So if you transfer about your balances onto a lower interest rate card, you want to have an aggressive plan to pay off that debt before the interest rate you know, pops back up to a higher level. I also think it's important to, I see so many people try to consolidate debt and they free up all these lines of credit and then they go out and they just end up getting in themselves in a worst, you know, worst situation because now they have credit available and they have, you know, opportunities to buy something um, because they've got this credit cleaned up. And so if you're going to consolidate debt, I think it needs to be part of a behavioral modification plan where there's some intentionality around you know, what you're doing, where you're, you're aggressively paying off that debt and you're not going to get yourself in a, you know, back into debt by freeing up lines of credit. And so say you are in a situation where you really want to change your life and you don't really have the money to do a lot of these things. I've been having a lot of people ask me questions about like, is investing in themselves or in their new dream or their business idea on their own a worthy investment or should you wait and save the money and start kind of on a clean slate with all the resources available? Oh, that's a great question. I I think there's a couple of things to think about there. I think having enough money to survive 
if you're thinking about launching a business, have enough money to where you don't have to worry about your rent or your mortgage, you know, the basic necessities of life, at least have, that's why that Liberty Fund is so important. If you have like six months worth of living expenses, it gives you a little bit of um, security, I guess is the right word to, to be able to say, I know I can focus on my business and not have to worry about making decisions regarding my business based on my need to pay my rent or mortgage this month, right? So it gives you a little bit of ability to make some good business decisions knowing you've got coverage for six months. I also think there's so many people out there that have great ideas and they think they can take those great ideas and make a business out of them. And I think having a business is very different than having a good idea. And so whenever somebody's launching a business, I would highly recommend, you know, putting it down on paper, creating a business plan, running the numbers. You need to be really in touch with the numbers, with what are you expecting to spend to create the business? What is your revenue going to be coming in, your expenses? All of that needs to be something that you do before you decide you're going to launch this business. So I think at least having a buffer so that you're not, you know, being in a situation where you're trying to make something work, you know, just to pay the bills immediately, which may not be great for your business long term is really a good place to be. And so that doesn't have to take forever, like, right, like six months worth of living expenses might seem like a lot, but, you know, it can happen um, even within a year, if there's a real plan and a real motivation to do so. Okay, well, we have a lot of actionable stuff to work with here. Uh, we've got a way to build a plan, getting in touch with our values, all of this stuff. But I think one of the hardest things, at least for me personally, is still dealing with those triggers when a new product hits my inbox or I suddenly really want a $17 matcha latte with CBD in it or whatever it might be. Do you have any tips for kind of breathing or moving through our triggers a little bit so that we're not so affected by our old patterns? Well, you know, when we go back to awareness, I think giving yourself a little bit of a financial timeout. So when you see something come in your inbox or you're walking through a town and you see a store that has this amazing item that you might want to buy or the new iPhone comes out and you immediately want to have it or whatever that is, is kind of start to institute a financial timeout. You might say to yourself, I'm going to give myself 24 hours to really consider whether or not this makes sense for me. And then you can have time to go back and you could say, how does this match up with my values and my goals? The things that I said were most important. Is it worth me having this now, knowing that the cost is going to be maybe that I won't reach my goal or my, you know, ultimate destination and really evaluating that for yourself? Give yourself that financial timeout so that you can make decisions in a in the right frame of mind. That awareness to recognize when the triggers are coming up is the first step. And then also making sure you take a minute and you consider it. I talk to people about you know, going back and saying, you know, weighing off, is the payoff that I'm going to feel immediately worth the long-term cost? If it is, then, you know, go ahead and do what you need to do and recognize that you're going to have to be okay with the results, which might be less than what you said you wanted. Or is the cost more meaningful? And in which case then it might give you just enough push to be able to say no to whatever it is that's coming in your inbox. So that's, you know, on your mind that you need to buy right away. Well, thank you so much for all the wisdom and actionable insights that you've given us today. So for listeners who are interested in learning more about you and your methods and possibly working with you, where's the best place for them to connect with you online? So the best place is to go to myworthfinance.com. 
My Worth is a um, media-driven community, and we're really inspiring women primarily to create a financial awakening among themselves, to break down the emotional and behavioral and societal barriers that have kept them from building strong financial foundations. And so we have so many great tools and resources and ways that they can be a part of a community to get more insights. There's events that we do that they can attend and just be a part of a broader conversation and community. So go to myworthfinance.com and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, YouTube, you name it. We're um, on all the social media channels and just connect with us and um, let us know what's important to you. I think we really want to hear from our community about where they're struggling and where we can provide the most value for them. All of the links from this episode will be in your exclusive member portal or at mindlove.com slash XO3. There's also a workbook created by Andi and My Worth that will help you conquer your mindset around money. Our minds are really powerful wealth-building tools that, when used the right way, can actually bring you more abundance and stability than you ever thought possible. So your challenge for this week is to start getting real with yourself. What parts of your financial situation are you still turning a blind eye to? You're not checking your bank account enough? Are you avoiding that budget? Have you not started a savings account yet? It feels scary, especially the more we avoid it. But when you just unravel it, when you just start taking a good hard look at it, a lot of times it's not quite as scary as you thought it was. And I know it's hard. This is something that I've struggled with my whole life. So no judgment, I feel you. I'm actually the first one to feel you on this one. But I will also say that over the last few years, I've become more and more responsible in this area and I've created worksheets and I've tried to set budgets. And the more hands-on I am, the more involved I am in my own finances, the better and more empowered I feel about it. So let's put on our big girl pants and get out there and do it. And finally, I just want to say thank you so much for your continued support of Mind Love. You guys are my inner circle. I love you so much and I can't wait to keep continuing to create this sacred space with you all. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today and I'll see you next time.